Let's start with talking about coronary artery disease. What is it and how would I know I have it? Coronary disease is blockage in the heart arteries. And really there's two different processes that go on. One is just the plaque building up in your arteries over time. And the other is when you have a heart attack. They are very different animals. The plaque process occurs when your cholesterol is high and then have other risk factors like high blood pressure, smoking, or diabetes. When you have a heart attack, it's a blood clot that forms in the narrowed area. That can happen randomly anytime a clot can form. That's why people take baby aspirins to try to prevent that. That's why you get aspirin when you're having chest pain and why you get a blood thinner, heparin, when you get to the emergency room. In that setting, if you're having a heart attack, that becomes an emergency angioplasty. You go directly from the ER right to the cath lab and try and open up that blocked artery to limit the amount of damage. Our focus today is though, is on the other side of things. As plaque gradually builds up in your blood vessels, eventually you get to the point where the blood supply to the heart muscle is limited. When you exert yourself, the oxygen demand goes up. And when demand outstrips the supply, that's when people may feel their angina. And it could be pronounced angina or angina. It's a little bit of the tomato, tomato thing. The angina is usually a pressure feeling in your chest, but it, the symptom can vary a lot from person to person. It could be a tightness. It could be sharp. It could be dull. It could be achy. It could be in your chest, your neck, your jaw, your arms. In some people, it's not a discomfort at all. It's just they're getting more short of breath when they do things, or they're getting tired faster when they do things. It's generally not a pain, so we often try to deny what we're feeling because they say, well, I'm not having any chest pain, but I have this awful pressure in my chest when I try to exert myself. And a lot of people will overlook that and not realize it, that that's a sign of a blocked artery. Okay, so how is this detected? It generally will be discovered two ways. One is if you go to your doctor with those symptoms, the next step would be to order a stress test. Stress tests don't see the heart arteries. They see is the heart muscle getting enough blood flow. You can have a normal stress test with some blockage. There's a lot of reserve built into the heart arteries. So unless the blockage is severe, the stress test will still look normal. But if your arteries are blocked enough to cause symptoms, then the stress test is almost always going to pick that up. Sometimes a stress test is done even when you're not having symptoms. During a regular annual checkup, you may get an EKG that's abnormal, that raises suspicion of blocked arteries. Sometimes you're going for a major operation and the cardiologist you see to clear you for the surgery says, you know what, let's be on the safe side. Let's get a stress test before you undergo these big procedures. We do not recommend a stress test just for anybody in part because it doesn't detect the mild disease. It only detects severe disease. So if you have an abnormal stress test, you suspect blocked arteries, that would lead to a procedure called a cardiac catheterization. A catheterization is done where a X-ray image is taken of each of the heart arteries. So once you take the pictures of the heart arteries, then you can see how much blockage is there. Not all blockages need to be fixed. There's some very good studies out now that give the cardiologist, the interventional cardiologist, a guide, which are the ones that are most likely going to have an impact on that person, either reducing the amount of angina symptoms they're having or prolonging life. But if it's only a moderate blockage or if it's in a smaller branch and you're not having a lot of symptoms, fixing that blockage has been shown not to prolong life. 
And every procedure has some risk to it. Fortunately, the risks are low, but the procedure does have some risks. Doctors know now, don't just put a stent wherever you see a blockage. There's good criteria which ones will actually help the person in the long run. Do you always start with a cardiac catheterization? Yes. The catheterization is the imaging of the arteries to see is there blockage and how much blockage and where is the blockage. And then generally at the same setting, if the decision is made that this would benefit the person to do an angioplasty, an angioplasty means fixing the blockage. The angioplasty is done as the second part of the catheterization. Years ago, it was done two separate procedures. You would do the catheterization, you'd stop, you analyze the films, talk to the person. But the x-ray imaging has gotten so good now that we have a very good idea what we're seeing when we just watch it live. You can replay it in the room. You don't have to go back to the analysis room afterwards and look at frame by frame occasionally. But most of the time, you can see it right in the room. Yes, this is a 90% blockage in the beginning portion of a major artery. That definitely needs a stent. And obviously, if you're the patient, if you can get it all done at one setting, you'd rather do that than come back twice. When do you use the balloon alone and when do you use a stent? Generally, you'll start with a balloon. When you do angioplasty, you don't remove the plaque. You put a fine wire down the blocked artery, inflate a balloon tip catheter where that blockage was, and that pushes the plaque out of the way. Mostly like stepping on an aluminum can. You just crush it against the wall of the artery. And then you take the balloon tip catheter out. When angioplasty was first developed, that's all that was available. It was only balloon angioplasty. The problem is arteries can block up again from two different mechanisms. One is sometimes the plaque acts more like a sponge than the aluminum can. And over time, the plaque recoils and blocks up the vessel again. The other thing that can block up an artery is scar tissue that forms. Small amounts of scar tissue are normal healing, but excessive scar tissue blocks up the artery again. It's like when you get a cut on your arm, sometimes it heals flat, sometimes the scar is raised a bit. If it's in your arm, it doesn't bother you. If it's in your heart artery, it blocks up the artery again. So there's two issues we had to deal with, recoil and scar tissue. When stents were developed, the stents eliminate recoil. After you do the balloon part, you put a, that catheter comes out, another balloon tip catheter goes in that has the stent mounted on it. You inflate the balloon, that expands the stent. The balloon's deflated and comes out, the stent stays in there permanently. They can never be removed. And the stent prevents recoil. It doesn't stop the scar tissue from forming. And in fact, even more scar tissue forms because of this metal irritating the vessel wall. Overall, stents are better than just balloon alone. So if you did a balloon, the artery would block up about 30% of the time in the first year. When you went to stents, it was down to 20%, but still way too much. So fortunately, there are a lot of great scientists and engineers. So they developed a way of putting a drug coating on the stent that then seeps into the vessel wall. The code, that drug coating is designed to inhibit scar tissue from forming. So the stent's the same, that stops the recoil, but these drug-coated stents limit the likelihood that scar tissue will form. And now when you put in a modern stent, there's only a 5% chance it's gonna block up. And generally that's in the first year. Sometimes scar tissue still forms, 
um, and it'll form in that first year. If it doesn't block up in the first year, they never block up. They don't wear out over time. Well, that's encouraging. But going back to the balloon, is there any time when it's best just to use that and not put in a stent? Only if we can't get a stent there. Sometimes vessels have so many bends into it that even with the modern stents that are far more flexible and smaller profiles that can get almost anywhere into the heart arteries, if you can't get a stent there, you do a balloon alone. The only other time you might do a balloon is if you're dealing with a blockage in a main artery and one of the side branches. Sometimes when you put the stent in place there, it causes some narrowing of the side branch that's right there. And you may just try to fix that with a balloon alone and stretch open that the opening to the side branch. And if the balloon alone doesn't work, then you would put a stent in. But occasionally for those branch vessels, you'll do balloon alone. The only other time would be if someone had a stent that blocked up, you may go back in, try a balloon alone procedure and see if that looks good enough. And if not, then put another stent inside the stent. Anything you want to add to our discussion? It's important to go to a facility that has a lot of experience with this. Angioplasty is a common procedure now, but still takes a lot of expertise. For instance, our stents that we choose when we're putting them in the body, the diameter of the stents comes in every quarter millimeter. So think about how big a millimeter is. When we're picking a stent, we may pick a 2.5 millimeter stent or a 2.75 or a 3.0 millimeter stent. So you need docs who have a lab that's very experienced and the doctor's experience. They've done this, so they have some good judgment. So a place like St. Mary's, we've been doing this for a long time. We do 3,000 cases a year of cardiac catheterization. We have a super team of doctors, technologists, nursing, support staff, and the, all the latest equipment. You want a place that does this well, does it often. If you just do it, go to a place that's not doing it very often. They may not even have all the different choices and stents, and there's a few other devices we'll occasionally use, like a rotoblader. They may not have doctors that have enough experience and outcomes correlate with experience. Dr. Fields, thanks for your time.